Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. I'm your host. This week's guest is the amazing Amy Jo Martin. She's the host of the Why Not Now podcast, where she interviews people about the moment they realize they should go for that thing they've been thinking about doing. Amy Jo is a New York Times bestselling author, the woman who taught Shaquille O'Neal how to tweet, former CEO and founder of Digital Royalty, a keynote speaker, innovation advocate, and an angel investor. She was named the number three most powerful person on Twitter by Forbes, and she's just a really great person. She is clearly the social media guru um, when it comes to sports, and we have a really great conversation. Before we jump into it, I want to remind you all that um, the Winning Edge Leadership Academy, co-founded by Maria Taylor of ESPN's College Game Day, is hosting their retreat in South Florida this June, and applications are due February 1st. They're open to current and former student-athletes who have a desire to work in the sports business. I will be there for one of the dinners, so make sure you apply. And now on to the interview. Hi, Amy Jo. Hello, Bobby Sue. I love that we both have two first names. I was thinking that earlier today. Um when uh, our friend Troy Kirby initially introduced us for a hot second, I was wondering if you were the pink power ranger. Um, oh. Yeah. Nope. She is Amy Jo Johnson. Uh, and my maiden name is Amy Jo Jensen. So oh, I'm very familiar with this power ranger. Yeah. Been, and she's from, well, she's uh, from yeah. my town. So oh, really? that's why I even know her name. Yes. <laughs> And then That's I was like, funny. no way, she's not old enough to be her. And I was right. So <laughs> welcome to living the playing field. I'm so I'm happy you're here. I'm excited to be here. And I love what you've built and you're growing and the message and conversation you're surfacing. So it's an honor. Well, it's an honor for me. Um, you have your own amazing story and following that, um, you know, just, I'm just so thankful for people like Troy, um, who, you know, take the time to introduce me to women like you. So, um, it's, it's going to be fun. Uh, I always start or usually start with this question, which is how did you fall in love with sports? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to go with my immediate visual. <laughs> I <laughs> fell in love with sports. Oh, I have five more popping into my mind, but um, <laughs> I grew up moving often. We lived, my family and I lived in a trailer home and we would move when my father's job would take us somewhere else. He worked in construction and heavy highway construction. And so mm. We lived in various cities and oftentimes they were tiny towns <laughs> and professional sports may have been quite far away. But when we were in Wyoming, it was always about the Broncos. <laughs> we were in Abilene, Kansas. You can guarantee I was at the Kansas the Kansas City Royals uh, World Series in the 80s. Uh, I mean, it was it was a lot of baseball growing up, really. And mm -hmm. my brother played little league. I played t-ball and, um, going to his games and living that life. It just, I've always been competitive and I loved it. 
Um, I love, you know, I am from a, a very baseball and football oriented family. Um, we didn't pay attention to hockey and base basketball, which is interesting, right? Because it, it, it's so weird. So um, I do have that <clears throat> one little conflict of interest that pops up every once in a while, um, like it did this past year, but um, with the, the home home team. But, um, you know, I think T-ball is like, is such a good intro, especially for young girls um, because they allow young girls to play with the boys at that time. Oh, interesting. We actually had an all girls team and I have to share with you, Bobby Sue, I was the pitcher in T-ball. Whoa. So if you think about that for a minute, <laughs> is it really necessary? A it's T-ball. <laughs> But, oh, yeah, I sit on that mound and every play I'd pretty much I'd pretty much it would be hit to me because a lot of times it wouldn't be hit, you know, to the outfield. Not yeah. saying that it couldn't be, but it just was the way we were at age, what, six. And I would throw it to my cousin who played first and we were the stars. <laughs> That's great. Did you um, did you play any sports um, in school when you as you got older? I played volleyball, a little bit of basketball, but it I didn't uh, take that too far. And always in gymnastics as well. So a lot of dance, believe it or not. And um, yeah. Well, I think that that probably explains how well you, you do and how comfortable you are on a stage. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of your talks and you're just very comfortable. Um, you, you know, speak very well and, um, that I bet that has something to do with it. And, you know, I've never thought of that before, but that could be, and it just reminded myself, talk about sports and, (laughs) and backgrounds. I just remembered my my dance team and I got to perform at an Oakland Raiders halftime. They were playing the Vikings and we were up in Oakland. And this was in high school. Yes. And talk about Raider Nation, small town girl here going to Oakland. And it was quite the experience. It was, it was raining so hard, but it was in that big of a, you know, environment. It was, now that I think about it, I loved that adrenaline. Yeah. I I wonder what the likelihood of them having a tape of that is. Oh my goodness. I think it was, (laughs) well, it was not to date myself, but it was before, of course, all of the the mobile phones and stuff. But I think I have seen, you know, every once in a while when your friend will post something from on Facebook from, yeah, (laughs) you have no idea how they got a hold of these pictures. I think I've been tagged in those before. I need to dig it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. We get, we have to include that on the blog post that eventually goes up on the website. <laughs> um, you, how did you um, decide to go to ASU? So ASU, I, I went to high school in a small town called Bullhead City, Arizona. It's right across the Colorado River from Laughlin, Nevada, a little gambling town. And I received a, a scholarship. It was called the Regent Scholarship. And you had a choice. You could go to U of A, ASU, or NAU. And um, there's a pretty big rivalry between U of A, which is in Tucson, and ASU in Phoenix right. and Old Tempe. And so 
I just thought Phoenix sounded like more fun, to be honest. Well, (laughs) ASU has that that reputation. It was the number one party school in America at the time, (laughs) voted by the reputable Playboy. So, you know. It was it was a party. I mean, that school is huge, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Did you um, know as you were applying to schools or deciding what school to go to that you wanted to get into marketing? I knew that from an early age, I had this weird thing where I would I would develop a crush on brands, <laughs> on logos. <laughs> And I just had this affinity that was almost abnormal in terms of I felt like I knew them. And that makes a lot more sense now as I I see how things played out and Mm kind of humanizing brands and things like that, especially with social media. But um, I didn't know I didn't have some master plan. I wasn't one of those kids that knew X, Y, Z. I wanted to be five different things, you know, not just. So uh, the ad agency and advertising did kind of seem romantic to me, though. And that's where I started. (laughs) What was the first brand or can you remember any of the brands that you had a crush on? Well, Nike. Well, yeah. Uh, And and I know that's so obvious, but it was, you know, just do it days. And and then you think about living in a sports family with, with Jordan and... And his era, um, that's the one that's, that sticks out the most. Um, so your first job was at EB Lane, um, which is a full-service uh, advertising NPR agency, which just so happened to have a ton of sports entity clients. It that was did. pretty lucky for you. <laughs> yeah, so lucky. My very first client, um, a couple of them, I had a, a few and I was like an account coordinator. Well, first I was an intern and then I became an account coordinator. <laughs> I think I was maybe making $24,000 a year, maybe. And, um, I got to work on the NHL Phoenix Coyotes and the Arizona Lottery, <laughs> which had big sponsorships with the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Arizona Cardinals. And then, Eventually got to work on the Super Bowl host committee campaign to Which try and get the Super Bowl. Amazing um, to be able to do. Yeah, to be cutting my teeth on those those brands was uh, was quite a dream. And there were a few in there too that weren't quite as sexy. I mean, of I had my fair share, of course. And I was a coordinator. I just did what people told me to do, basically. <laughs> um, do you remember any of your favorite campaigns? That came out of that? Oh, I remember. I hope I'm not offending anyone at this point, but it was so long ago. There was a time when the Cardinals, the Cardinals became a client to themselves when they just were struggling. There mm-hmm. were several seasons and we decided it was a creative team. I can't take credit for this, but my creative team um, or for the agency decided, why don't we just role with football in general and called it long live Sunday and not even talk about the Cardinals. So we can talk about the other team that's in town. <laughs> we can talk about for the love of the game and the creative team, um, Gary service and Chad Martin, they came up with 
this amazing campaign and it was all about the joys of Sunday and going to the game or watching it and the things you do. And it was called Long Live Sunday and it was brilliant. That is such a good campaign name. And just hearing it, you can come up with the visuals, right? And, oh, and yeah. Troll management. <laughs> How did you um, end up at the Suns? I ended up at the Suns. I can really think the, you know, E.B. Lane was so good to me and Bo Lane, the founder. Um, it's quite the the steady anchor in, in that city for so much business and, and partnerships. And he, um, we had the Arizona lottery account and I worked on the sun's partnership, the big sponsorship that they had and just got to know some people over there. And they called me one day and said, Hey, will you come over here? And, um, and that's when I, you know, I, I got my first, real opportunity in professional sports. I'd been kind of skirting around it and they had quite the leadership team at the time. And it was, um, it was an amazing ride. <laughs> when you, um, when you were going to school, you know, going through all your marketing classes and stuff, did you think that you would be working in pro sports? I thought I, my dream was really Madison Avenue and to hit the big agencies. I didn't really <laughs> think sports too much. Um, and it was before Mad Men, by the way. So I, <laughs> right. I didn't even really have that for a visual. But I think it was it was this idea of walking into a boardroom and pitching an amazing campaign and the things you'd see on the movies. Like, I think there's yeah. literally a Jennifer Aniston movie about that. And so that was kind of my vision for myself. And I have yet to live in New York city and, <laughs> and wear that hat, but I'm pretty happy with how things netted out. <laughs> yeah. Well, while you were there, um, what, what were your first roles as? I mean, I know what your end role there was, but what did you start yeah. as? I forget the actual title, but I was in marketing partnerships. Oh, I think it was senior activation uh, yep. manager or something. So it was basically fulfilling what the sales team sold <laughs> and right. making sure that our big brand clients were happy and um, working really closely with marketing partnerships, which is basically a nice, nicer way of saying sponsorships. And um and it was, we were rocking and rolling. It was a great era for the Phoenix Suns. We had Steve Nash, Marty Stoudemire. Um, geez, uh, I'm trying to even think of. Uh, I don't know. There's just one big Sean name Marion, you're missing. Shaquille O'Neal came. He, <laughs> yep. I mean, he really kind of, it was seven seconds or less, like running and gunning. And then Shaquille showed up. And everybody's like, oh, I don't know if we can. To have that offensive or that offense strategy is as much, but um, <laughs> it was a fun time because that team was so fun to watch. Yeah, I, I can remember it actually. And even though I wasn't a big basketball um, fan, you just knew, right? The, the especially with um, Nash and Shaq, like there's just something there um, that was going on with the team and. Um, you, uh, can you tell the story about how you pitched, um, and 
successfully got a uh, a new role there? Yeah. So it was, I was in this spot where digital marketing wasn't new per se. You know, we had our, our digital assets, as we called them, that we would sell against and email marketing and our website. But what was really new was mobile marketing mm-hmm. and uh, our partners loved it. We had Verizon as clients. So we had some mobile text to win type campaigns and stuff. And Jeremy, Jeremy McPeak, huge shout out to him. He was running digital at the time, interactive, I think we called it. So I worked closely with him and we just realized there was, there was a lot of innovation going on and I was starting to experiment and wanted to be a part of it. And so I, it was called new media at the time too. So <laughs> that's so funny that we didn't have the vision to know that maybe we should call it something that's not so uh, t- timely and <laughs> longer shelf life. Um, so yeah, I, I pitched my boss, my bosses. I think I, at that point, I don't know if I had one or two, but eventually I, I landed between the new business team, the sales team, ticket sales, John Walker and uh, Lynn Agnello, who is running marketing partnerships. And I was like, I think we can, we can really monetize this. I think we can be industry leaders in the league and really integrate our marketing partners into these new ways of connecting with our audience and sell against it. And let's give it a go. And Sam uh, Garvin at the time was a uh, on the ownership team and um, Rick Welts was at the helm who was so innovative and always progressive and they were like let's do it and it was the first of its kind in the league this position when um, when did you first learn about Twitter I learned I knew of course of Twitter, but when I realized when the light bulb came on that this was something big was I was sitting in an iMedia summit conference and one of the venture capitalists that had, I think his name is Mark Guami at Sequoia, I think he was on stage and he was talking about it and he was talking about how he was using it personally as well as the business side and the upside and how quickly it was growing. And this light bulb came on of, wow, this is something we could use to bridge the affinity of the fan with the affinity of the team, the franchise, the players and the marketing partners. And it was like this, wow, this is gold. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, Oh, sorry. No, go on. It was before the 2008 election. So I think this would have been, it it was before it really became, in my opinion, that election and and President Obama ended up really putting Twitter on the map. It had existed for years prior, but the adoption and the awareness really spiked when that election happened. Why do you, what, what makes you say that? Um, what about that election and, and President Obama in particular, um, do you think made that occur? I think his use of it really and his um, ability to see it was an, an asset and a way to connect with more people, to democratize media, to not rely on traditional media and um, his team 
his camp really harnessed the channel because he was able to scale himself beyond one city at a time at that point and right. and uh and the 24 hours in his day and and yeah it was it was pretty remarkable and then you facebook too of course i mean it was a it definitely came prior but it it was huge for that campaign too right that ele- election in general yes and as we're aware has changed elections ever since <laughs> Whether, sure whether we like it or not. Um, do you, um, do you remember and can you relate the story about when the league kind of saw what y'all were doing in Phoenix and, uh, and had a bit of a reaction? Yeah. So a lot of this, it just started to happen and unfolded. And what I mean by this is, um, I started experimenting with, social media. And I had this role. And at this point, um, I had been called down to the locker room to teach Shaquille O'Neal how to tweet because he wanted to. And no one else in the building really knew what that meant. How does that go, by the way? Like, how does that phone call, you know, hey, Amy Jo, uh, Shaq needs you down here to, to explain Twitter? Well, I'm sitting in a, in a cubicle, right? And, Mm -hmm. um, and my, for some reason, my phone, it wasn't my exact desk, but my phone used to be Brian Colangelo's phone. So Jerry Colangelo's son, who were, it was management at the Phoenix Suns. And somehow I got his old extension. So <laughs> when I saw basketball operations pop up on my phone, uh, you know, my landline, I thought, oh, they mistake, this is a mistake. This isn't for me. And because <laughs> the locker room and the officer, they're never calling me. Why would they be? I'm, I'm right. in digital and partnerships. And so, um, yeah, sure enough. Can you come down here right now? Shaquille O'Neal wants to learn how to tweet and we've checked around. You're the only one in the building that knows what that means. And I think they called it like, he wants to learn how to Twitter or he wants to <laughs> Twitter, you know, back in the right. day when everybody <laughs> made fun of the name and the bluebird. So I went down and um, went down the elevator and and if you work in pro sports or even if you don't have any context, it's a little, I think, sometimes deceptive. The front office people, unless in your, you're in a certain role, you don't always engage in and have exposure to the athletes. It's, right. it's a business, right? It's an operation and there are PR people and and certain people that, that do, but even that separate business PR versus player PR. And so, so this was not a usual thing for someone <laughs> of my junior level to be headed down to the locker room. And, um, and so I go down and there's seven foot tall Shaquille O'Neal and that's where it all started. And take us through that first. Like, what did you, did you just sit there and go, okay, so you need to come up with a name. <laughs> Well, so he hands me his Shackberry, as he called it. You know, everything has this Shack play on the words. And and, um, and I I just kind of started to show him it was it was not um, this wasn't the very first time. What had happened was there were imposters. There were people who were pretending to be. Shaquille O'Neal on Twitter and it was before verification. Right. So 
it was very confusing to fans. In fact, there was one point where a fan and I, I met him later and, and this guy is completely creative and, and so funny. He had, um, I think it was at Shaq O'Neal was the handle and he had a pretty large following because he was pretending to be him and he would tweet things like during the middle of a game, during a live broadcast, he would tweet, <laughs> I've got my phone underneath my my uh, towel here sitting on the bench and um, I don't want anybody to know, but uh, he's like tweeting during the game and I can only imagine well, the league is commissioner be like, at the time yeah. going, what is going on in Phoenix? And, and so, um, so this was also a way for him to own his voice. And if, if anyone that knows Shaquille and has either seen him or heard him interviewed or follows him or, or knows anything of him, he has zero ability to fake anything and he's larger than life and he's hilarious and real and personable. So this was a perfect fit for him. Um, you um, dealing with some of the imposters uh, went to Twitter to try and figure out a way to solve it. Right. I did. I love that you've done your research too, Bobby Sue. I've never had anyone mention, so tell me about your time at Ebuane. <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, yeah, I did. So there were about 11 people working at the Twitter office at the time. <laughs> and I connected with this woman. Her name is Caroline. She's no longer there, but she's kind of a legend in my opinion. And <laughs> They are like, we've got a problem here. You know, nobody knows who's who and can we, there's no often like no way to really authorize or, or have authorization or authenticate who people are. And they had, this was probably not the first time they'd heard this because um, this was not the very beginning of Twitter. They had been around for a few years. They just hadn't really taken off yet. And and so they said, well, well, we've got this new symbol and it's a blue check mark and we'll put it next to Shaquille's name. Pretty sure he was the very first person, if not right there. And um, that will tell fans that it's really him. And you know what? Because you're working with him and you are he's always bantering with you on Twitter, we're going to give you the blue check mark too. And I thought... Oh, gosh. It's like I had been <laughs> crowned or something, you know, a little girl from yeah. Wyoming getting the blue check mark, and <laughs> the second person possibly ever. I'm not sure if that's literally a second, but it was, from what I understand, the very, very uh, first. So that it really started to just uh, become a, there, there was momentum. And we started doing random acts of shackness. I, I don't, I came up with this random idea and um, I, I was like, well, let's prove to fans it's you. This was before the check mark and it was kind of a renegade way of uh, trying to figure out a solution, I guess. And, and said, what if we do these stunts and these in-person kind of you know, flash mob things where you stand on a street corner and you tweet your exact whereabouts and then fans will know it's you because they can come and find you and will say, 
the first person to get tickets to the game or the first person to tag you will get tickets to the game the next night or something. Mm-hmm. You know, we came up with a lot of different ideas and, and he was game. He was up for it. And so zero security. We <laughs> head down to. Which like you can't even imagine today. <laughs> like I can't. I know. Right. But what's funny about Shaquille too is he can't go incognito. I mean, oh, right. there's That's- just zero like <laughs> chance there. So, um, but he did it. And bunch of fans show up the next thing you know eventually the media shows up and <laughs> one time in boston after he he went phoenix to cleveland to boston he did this in boston and the authorities show up and <laughs> and um it just became this this way of bridging the virtual world with the physical world and it started to take off we were getting a lot of mainstream news attention. Um, and there was one day where I remember standing outside of Rick Welts, our president of the team, uh, standing outside of his office in the morning early. And I, you never would just go in Rick's office, especially a director level. Like, but I thought, oh my goodness, there's a New York Times article coming out. <laughs> I need to let him know. <laughs> and this thing all of a sudden took on a life of its own. And uh, my hand was getting slapped because there were no rules. It was like, slow down here. We don't have rules yet for this, this stuff, this social media stuff. What was the New York um, Times article about? I, I'm pretty sure it was the random acts of shackness. I would have to go back and look. There, there could have even been a couple. There was so much. I mean, it was a daily occurrence that what he was doing on Twitter would show up on ESPN coverage that night. And um, it just, it became at one point, I think the league office was calling saying, (laughs) hold up, you know, we need to get rules for this and regulations for social media for the teams. And uh, what are you doing down there in Phoenix? And I kind of was told I was in a Twitter timeout. Like I needed to pause everything. <laughs> and I didn't really, at that point, the, the train had left the building. I mean, there was no stopping what was happening. It became this incredible wave and it was larger than, than one person for sure. Um, was, <laughs> I love the league basically like locking you out of Twitter. Um, they didn't really, but I was but, told yeah. to stop. <laughs> Did now? I know there are some teams um, in each league that are more deferential to the league um, than others, right? And there are some that are just little mavericks on their own um, and decide, you know, what we're going to push all the boundaries we can. Um, I'll use the Cavaliers are a great example of that. Um, do you, did you have the backing of like ownership to just kind of do what you wanted um, and maybe not listen to the league? Uh, well, what's interesting is David Stern was the commissioner at the time and Rick Welts, our president, was, he used to work under David Stern and in, in the league <laughs> office. So there was a interesting dynamic, but, you know, we did have, once they got it and they saw we can actually monetize this. We can grow this influence and it's progressive. We're connecting with fans and they started to see the value. 
they were actually really pretty supportive, I'd say. Um, it took a lot of me asking forgiveness instead of permission. And there were some pretty right. m- why not now moments for me um, <laughs> to just go. And but Rick, Rick Welts, and he's a visionary. He was a big uh, part of getting the all-star game <laughs> to to come to life. I mean, he's he's been pushing boundaries all his career and and my two bosses, they they knew it was good. Uh, it was just it was scary because people didn't know they realized that it, it was really powerful and it was also a potential liability. Right. And then you have the fact that in any organization and having now worked with some of the biggest brands in the world and as clients, they there's a land grab and there's a bit of a turf uh, war that happens when something like this of an asset this size to a business becomes available and services. It's like, is this going to live in communications? Is this going to live in marketing? Uh, creative, you know, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. it just becomes a big who owns it internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I know the NBA has been uh, probably the most progressive league when it comes to use of different um, social media, you know, social communication oh, yeah. channels, however you want to term it. Um, they they don't waste any time before getting everyone involved. Um, which I think is phenomenal. I mean, just from the fan engagement standpoint, it, I think it just brings everything to life more. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. They were so ahead in the first sports league to, to really get it. And I mean, they benefited in the fans and Scott O'Neill at the time uh, this was a this was literally a decade ago, believe yeah, it or not. Can I you know. That? <laughs> so much has happened since, but Scott O'Neill was leading uh was at the NBA and and in a leadership role there at the time. And he um I remember just going to a league meeting with him giving his kind of opening uh speech and I was so inspired by him. <laughs> and a lot of it was about innovation. And this was yeah. 2008. So we're talking economic crisis going on, right? right? So this was interesting. Well, and I think that's when you need the innovation, right? Because mm-hmm. people are going to use their dollars more sparingly. Um, and so you have to innovate in order to draw people in and, and to part with those dollars, Absolutely. It's it's getting super um almost scrappy is the word that comes yeah. to mind. You know, yeah. and also really resourceful. Yeah. For sure. Um when you had your own why not now moment, um, when a manager of yours told you you had to pick two between work, family, and self. Can you tell us about that story and, and what you did thereafter? Yeah, I, I definitely can. I um, I had a uh, superior who was female sit me down and and say, "Amy Joe, choose two. You can't have all three. Work, family, self. Choose two. And she wrote those three 
words on a piece of paper, work, family, self, and slid it across the desk to me. And, and it sounds, I mean, thinking about it now in hindsight, and I didn't buy it. I, I immediately thought, well, and, and here I was a 20, 20 year old kind of <laughs> young gun thinking I could do anything. Right. And, um, and as I look back at it now, you know, I have a lot more compassion for her. And I, I for a while was pretty renegade about it and, and talked about how you can't do that. And, but in her spot at that very moment, she really believed that was true. And, and I think there was some personal experience and struggle going on there. It wasn't a, hey, you can't do it. Um, right. It was almost like giving me a bit of a tip. And so, you know, it's just a different era. And I, I guess that's it, when it occurred to me, wow, is this because I'm a female? <laughs> of course it is. Right. And I had never really thought about that too much before. And I guess it was an advantage not to uh, consider being a female in sports a handicap. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I have this conversation with women in the industry a lot and it's, um, that mentality isn't necessarily gone, unfortunately. And, and it's not necessarily a top down thing. It's women themselves as they're coming up, think they're not going to be able to do these things or, um, there's something about the industry and depending on the sport, you know, you talk about like baseball, hockey, basketball, um, less so with basketball now though. Um, you, it's not super friendly for young parent, right? So, yeah. if you, mm -hmm. so if you do want to have a family and so there's, there's a point in which you see the, the numbers of women um, just like when we're kids playing sports, there's a point where you see numbers of women drop, you know, young girls dropping out of sports, um, and, and trying to figure out the why behind that. You see the same thing with women in the sports business industry and, um, Tara Black, the CEO of the Checkers and I have had this conversation a couple times about what can we do to, to keep them in? Um, and what is it that needs to change? in order for that to work and for them to, to have their full life that they, that they want to have, that we all want to have. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a big, it's a big question. And it's very complex because I, I think I used to think it was very, very simple. And there are some aspects that I do believe are actually quite simple. Mm -hmm. The nature of sports, especially in the NBA, there are a lot of games and right. games happen at night and you still work all day. And so it's, um, it, that means dads are, are missing out too on stuff going at home, going on at home potentially. Um, so there are some fixed elements that just by the nature of logistics and timing add complications. And then there, there's a lot of the mentality that right. um, that can be progressed forward, and that 
hopefully has been accelerated <laughs> and will continue to, but it's, um, there's, it's not just in sports either. It's, it really is across the board and we hear about it and we're finally seeing a bit of a paradigm shift. It's not a bit of a paradigm shift. It is a paradigm shift Yeah, with, um, people being willing to talk about the conversation of, uh, the, the skewed kind of discrepancy of, of equal representation. Right. Uh, and, and so it's, it's time. It's, it's time to have those conversations. Yeah. She was telling me that at their organization, they've gone to like a flex work week. So, um, I think, you know, everybody works in the office four days a week and then, um, from home the other days, you know, because how many, how many jobs do you really have to be in the office for? Right. Uh, right. Right. And, and I think though, too, it's bigger than those technicalities, I think can be worked through if sure. it's a culture thing. And we now live in a day and age where almost anything can happen anywhere and shifting and stuff. But I think the, the mentality really and the, the old ways of doing things and thinking is really what needs to change. And that's actually easier than sometimes logistical, right. <laughs> but it takes longer right. and it's, it's the good old boys club. It's the, you gotta be a bulldog to be a female in sports. I mean, I totally subscribed to that for a long time and not just in sports, but in tech and entertainment. When I started my own company in 2009, I thought, playing with the boys meant I needed to take on a lot of those attributes and be a hard ass and take on that that persona. And um, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, that's another whole conversation, but it's, it's interesting to see the shift happening right now because it's like I said, it's been a long time coming. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I've had to be the same way. You know, I I worked in telecom before going into sports. And let me just tell you, it's like working at a frat house. I mean, the Mm -hmm. way, the way the, the sales guys, um, would interact at times. And like one of them found out how old I was. It was my birthday and somebody had sent me cupcakes, which by the way, to you or anyone listening, I will forever love you if you ever send me cupcakes. Gourmet <laughs> cupcakes are like my favorite thing. Um, and one of the sales guys at one of our other offices knew that and like and sent me cupcakes for my birthday, which was really good. I always got his stuff done real quick. Um, <laughs> but this other one who is kind of a dick anyway um, and a little shady. And I, I would always call him out on his shit because I'm sorry. Like, no, (laughs) the answer is just no. And I, I try to be very, um, uh, team friendly. Right. And I, I, especially as I've gotten older, I, I've learned how to, um, be less of a no and more of a finding other solutions type, but it was just the only way to handle this one person. And so he found out how old I was and he goes, Oh, I get it. You're just trying to be a big girl. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and the stories they do spread across every vertical and industry. Uh, And it's, 
I, I really do believe there are a lot of things shifting right now. And it's just a matter of, I, I really hope that, that this progress that we're seeing doesn't continue to be framed as an us versus them, as a men versus women, as a win right. versus lose, because that's not going to work. It's not sustainable. And it's, it's not the solution. It's just swinging the pendulum to another side, which I know that some of that has to happen for momentum. Mm -hmm. Um, but the men versus women game and the us versus them, it really isn't a sound (laughs) sustainable solution. You know, it's, it's just a game is what it is. Right. I mean, and it's likely to, instead of continuing the momentum, to to block it, to, you know, throw a wall up, you know, real quick. And and then we're almost, almost stuck back where we were, right? Um, that's why there's always worry about the Me Too um, campaign and fatigue of it mm-hmm. um, and there being backlash. Um, and... You know, that's something that I think of a lot of us are just kind of holding our breaths watching to see if that occurs, hoping it doesn't. Um, but it's um, it's definitely an interesting time to to be in any business, but to be in a very male dominated business. It's it's interesting to watch and to hear the conversations and, um, you know, uh, and realize how truly um some people just have blinders on yeah it's it's what's next is what's interesting to me so i think you know a lot of this has to happen and it had to happen me too and the awareness uh and i've been harping on this and it's been on my mind for at least a, a decade in terms of starting my own company as a female entrepreneur and I didn't go out and seek funding and, and fortunately I didn't need it. It would just kind of bootstrapped away, but you start knowing, and as an investor myself now, um, seeing the funding discrepancies and the, there just isn't equal access, you know, to money. And it's, you take things like that and you also take this, these movements happening. And, um, I think it's it's actually really good because it starts the conversation. It's just what's next? How can we mobilize beyond having the discussion or beyond the million women march? And just like you starting this podcast was a result of you wanting to do more and and have some substance, some tangible action that you could take. And I believe men and women are hungry for that. And it's not just women. It's like, no, what can I do? Literally, um, you see the. Uh, what's it called? It's time. The big you right know, movement right now. Oh, the time's and, up. Is or it, time's up. T- time's up. Time's up. Yeah. yeah. They've generated what sixteen million dollars in yeah. twenty one days, and that's barely. They've just started really promoting it. Um, first of the year, and at the Globe and Golden Globes, was their kind of big unveiling, and uh, it's people are ready. They just want to, I think, now do something about it. And right, we can talk and talk and talk. And now, now what? And so that's what I'm excited about. Well, and I think we've seen it um, in the past year, you know, whatever 
side of the aisle you lean towards or fall on, it's hard to deny that you've seen the I need to do something um, in action over the past year. I mean, I know this isn't sports related, but I think it's, you know, the context of the world we live in is always important. And, you know, people are actually mobilizing and, you know, for the first time calling their Congress people and senators and running for office. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's incredible what has occurred just in the political landscape over the past year. Um, And the, the feeling of needing to do something and what it's, what it's um, caused to occur already. Exactly. And, and it's happening in every facet. And so, and then you look at, you layer social media on top of this and the, the velocity of communication and, and spreading of news. Right. (laughs) It's just, it, it accelerates. And so it's, it's really exciting. I'm grateful to be witnessing this and living in this era right now. Well, that um, acceleration of news and, um, you know, the democratization of um, media, basically, right? Um, Through Twitter is something that you watched unfold on March 11th, 2011. Can you talk about the Im- what that date represents for you but also the impact that that had on you absolutely and thank you for bringing it up Bobby Sue and I <laughs> remain impressed with your research but March 11th 2011 was the day the night of the Japan earthquake and it was one of the most powerful moments in my life to be sitting there watching the news unfold um, on, I was on my elliptical machine and <laughs> scrolling through Twitter, of course, on my iPad and see the, I should have been working harder. I shouldn't have been able to actually scroll through Twitter, but clearly I was, um, I don't I understand wasn't. ellipticals. I just need to point that out. They make no sense to me. I feel <laughs> like I'm going to fall off all the time. So the fact that you can do these two things at once, regardless of how hard you are working out, makes you a queen in my world. I don't know about that. Oh my gosh, I did everything on the elliptical. I think I <laughs> studied for every college exam and I've, I knit on the elliptical. Um, oh once you my get God. Your here, yeah, but clearly I should be trying harder and I need to get my heart rate up higher. But <laughs> here I am scrolling through and I see a worldwide trending topic pop up and it's Japan earthquake. Turn on the news. There you have CNN and all the other networks reporting. And this was happening real time. The devastation, the semi trucks being like pushed over by waves and the just absolute disaster was unfolding minute by minute by play. And it was before the broadcast networks really understood that they could leverage and, and use social media um, as, as an asset for news and to, to help, it was just more for reporting. So they'd play the same clips over and over these little cuts. And, and I thought, what can I do? This is happening right now. And it was at night. So I remember getting to my kitchen table with my laptop and hopping on Twitter and just thinking, okay, what do I know? I'm not a journalist, but I do know that 
value rises to the top. So the most retweeted things are probably the most valuable pieces of content and information. So I found those, which was pretty easy to find. So these would be things like dial out codes, people who needed to know what the codes were to dial out. Um, There were some people who were trapped literally and they were able to tweet, but they couldn't dial in some cases. And there were people who were looking for maps of where the tsunami would be hitting next and what regions and what times. And so I started just shifting that information from one set of hands to the other, meaning I had over a million people following me on Twitter. And and it was a way to just add a boost, a microphone to what was already of value. And then started thinking, what if we t- start tagging first responders or just trying to think as creatively as I could about how to get uh, this info from the people who needed it to the people who um, who were in need of the people who could help. And, and um, I stayed up all night. I didn't sleep at all. The next morning, I remember boarding a flight to go to South by Southwest and I felt like my life changed. I realized <laughs> this space is not just about funny random acts of shackness or helping Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know, promote his next movie or on the red carpet. It was it was about the fact that with a click of a button, one person could help someone else on the other side of the globe and possibly help save their life. And there are no geographic boundaries. You know, we're only really bound by the speed of technology. And so this was the a big aha moment of wow. Uh, we can actually scale the act of helping one each one another. We can um, use this to accelerate good. And this was a disaster recovery relief situation. But then the idea became, well, why aren't we using this like this in macro all day, every day situation or micro all day, every day kind of situation? So it was it was huge. I I realized there was more purpose behind this than just playing on Twitter. And well, you you kind of took that and started experimenting with it on your own, right? Yeah, I did. I I you know, I had been building my own company at this point and we had a lot of big clients, Hilton Worldwide and you know, Fox Sports and uh, pro sports teams and professional athletes, A-list celebrities. And so I was constantly trying to figure out how can we inject more purpose, you know, and Mm -hmm. look at the amount of influence. At one point, we counted up the following of all of our clients and we're in hundreds of millions of of following and reach. (laughs) And so it was feeling a sense of responsibility, but also knowing you're building a company and growing very quickly. First time entrepreneur, first time CEO. So that's also a pretty big priority because right. y- you have these people who are working for you and their livelihood depends on you too. So it took a while, but eventually I really got curious about how this is impacting humanity and the relationship between like serotonin and social media, the relationship between, um, you know, our addiction to technology and social media and our fatigue (laughs) (laughs) and just started digging into that area more and doing some, ended up doing a clinical study with, with a scientist to research some of this. 
which is really one of the things that fascinates me the most about you is how much research, you know, you're, you're complimenting me on doing research on you. And all I did was use the skills I used when I, you know, wanted to date people in Google (laughs) stalking and, uh, and applied it to you. But I joke kind of, um, kind (laughs) of, I love it. Hey, resourceful. I mean, I mean, yeah, you got to find these things out right now. Mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, eh, that's a whole nother problem, but, um, you know, you, you've, um, on many different topics now really delved into, you know, research and, and these studies of, uh, various aspects of, you know, I want to say like sociology almost, right. Um, you, you've done it with, um, the clinical study you just talked about, but you're also working on a new research study, um, about like the highest achieving women, right. And, and the things that they have in common. Um, what, how did you, where did this come from? This research aspect of you? That's a good question. And, and I haven't given it a ton of thought before, but I guess if I track back, um, my father was an engineer estimator and super numbers, math, analytical, uh, brain brilliant. And, and maybe some of that rubbed off, but even in the Phoenix Suns, in that role that I conned them into giving me and creating, um, I was the director of digital media and research. And one of the reasons research was a part of it was because (laughs) I think I was the only one that really enjoyed and got excited when it was time to hop into Scarborough and, and do some digging around to see, um, you know, uh, who, who the listeners and fans and attendees are for, XYZ event and the brand affinity they had towards one of our marketing partners. And so it was just like this numbers, fun pivot tables. Like it just juicy. (laughs) And, and then you have this creative side and for people who say you are one or the other, that's BS. I just don't buy it. In fact, I think getting creative with how to measure social media in the beginning was probably one of the biggest, um, uh, springboards for for me and really getting curious and saying, let's create an industry standard. Everyone's saying you can't measure it, you can't monetize it. Well, that's bullshit. I know we can. And just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean we can't create it. And uh, I just, I love numbers. And I think it's because they're so black and white. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so much gray in our world that I've always enjoyed math and things in school where there was a right answer and there was a wrong answer. Usually <laughs> life isn't that way. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you took that with you into um, your company when you, I mean, first you started out consulting, but then, you know, when you turned that into an actual company, that was your your bread and butter right there, right? Yeah, it was, it was um, you know, we had to validate the spend against this new zany space called social media. And we had to find ways to prove that it was valuable and intuitively knew it, we knew it, but it wasn't, it wasn't black and white. Like you couldn't have an affidavit or spots and dots that you have when you place TV and you didn't have <laughs> someone telling you what your, 
ratings were or, you know, so, so, and now it's much more, I mean, you have all these analytics so platforms. Yeah. 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 It's, I think it's just curiosity. I, I'm a curious person and there's not much you can't find, especially with, with our online tools that we have at our fingertips. They are much easier than the encyclopedia sets that are missing letters. <laughs> like I had seen you, you must have heard that talk or wherever I. Yeah, yes, I love it. We did. I, we had all the same. whole set. But you did the same. I think every kid probably would get in school the one research topic that yeah. they were missing. You know, they had to research Watergate and we were missing W in our set. <laughs> and I'm like, great. <laughs> Library think- it is. I think that story um, was one of, it was, you know, one that I was like, oh yeah, we're, we're totally going to jive. And I could, and I had a picture of myself and please tell me I'm not the only one who did this, but you know, sometimes libraries and schools will like give away books or sell really, really cheaply books that are kind of like out of date and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Textbooks. I remember being so excited to take home an algebra book. And it was before I was to take algebra. And now like, this is funny because now I'm like math. I don't do math. Um, but I would sit in my closet. I had a little, um, a little spot in my closet that was higher up than the rest of the closet. And there had, there was a shelf in it and it was kind of like my little study area. I was in like fifth grade, I think. And, um, I remember um, going in there with the algebra book, closing the doors. They were sliding doors, closing the sliding doors. And it's just me and my this algebra book. And I freaking taught myself algebra. Wow. Wow. That's, Which is yeah. weird. <laughs> well, I mean, is it though? Uh, I don't know. Is it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's... that's Crazy! I just I think the sound of this little nook that you had. I want to go there. I loved it. I loved it so much. I like, you know, I always want to have like a little reading nook whenever I have my own place. Um, And I'm not quite there yet, but one of these days um, it'll be like a nice, cozy little little spot. But um, your company blew up. Um, I know you've exited from it um, in the last couple of years, but um, it, the fact that it got so big, um, kind of got you a lot of attention personally. Um, and one of my favorite stories that I heard while researching you was the Vanity Fair story. Oh yeah, that was an interesting one, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> would you like me to? Yes, please. To, uh, share. Well, it was, oh gosh. So things were rocking and rolling. First time entrepreneur, I had no idea what I was doing in my 20s. And, um, you know, we, it helped. Shaquille O'Neal as a first client is not bad, larger than life, literally, right? And so that, we, we meaning the company Digital Royalty, um, had really been put on the map from some of our early clients, the Chicago White Sox, Shaquille O'Neal, um, Fox Sports, UFC, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Hilton, blah, blah, blah. And so 
we were getting a lot of attention because a lot of eyeballs were on this space of what is it? How do you use it? How do you harness it? How do you make money? How do you get more customers? And um, Spotlight was on and I had... <laughs> I had this opportunity to be in this Vanity Fair story that was going to be all about these women who were kind of pioneering social media and these, um, I don't even think it was called influencers at the time, but that's basically what I think we were and, and um, get the call and I'm like, Vanity Fair, I don't even need to know what it's about. Yes. My answer is absolutely. <laughs> Photo shoot for Vanity Fair with an article. Um, sounds like a dream, right? And um, no, I knew kind of, I knew what it was supposed to be about. And so I thought, amazing, great. Help promote the company, tell some stories, really believe in this space and what it can do for people. And it's the equal playing field and, you know, democratizing our voices, all about it. And so I, I show motivate up. Motivate you for the gym. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was so motivated for the gym. Um, and I cannot tell a lie. That's a true story. Anytime you learn that that's about to happen, you're thinking, okay, what am I going to wear? So on and so forth. So actually I didn't worry about what I was going to wear, but last minute they said, um, you know, and bring, we figured they'd style us. And there were five, six of us uh, women who were, asked to be a part of this. So we fly into LA and, um, and they did last minute, they said, you know, bring something that you'd like to wear. And so last minute, I remember finding myself at the fashion show mall in or fashion square mall in feet in Scottsdale. And I'm looking for something late at night. I have to get on the flight the next day and we show up for the shoot. And oh no, actually what happened is I, sh I show up at Standard Hotel, and I sit down for a two-hour interview with a journalist. It's one-on-one. -on -one. I'm talking about these new formulas we've created, this software that we're using to track online behavior and sentiment. I mean, I'm talking about my math and my analytics and my vision <laughs> for the world. And, um, and then we go to the shoot, and the stylist said, you know, we're going to do two outfits. We're going to do one that we chose and then you guys can wear whatever you brought. And the one that they chose, uh, they were trench coats mm. and they, they had us, they asked us to wear trench coats with heels, these like black stilettos. And so, I mean, nothing was showing, but it was definitely different than we had imagined. And right. so we're like, Hmm, I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. And Felicia Day was also in this group and she was, she's pretty established and doing some big things, actress. And, and I just kind of was like thinking, is this, is this right? Are we really doing this? And I didn't speak up. I, I full 100% responsibility. I didn't say anything. And, um, and they weren't, it wasn't that bad, but it wouldn't have been my first choice as a, female entrepreneur trying to grow her business and to be taken seriously by her clients and executives. Well, right. Yeah. Well, the story comes out, Bobby Sue, and the title is, and it's a full, you know, it's a full spread in the, in the magazine, like amazing photography and this story called America's Tweet Hearts. And we had no idea that they were going to take this angle. And the journalist 
um, trying to even remember her name, but she hadn't even, she wasn't even on social media and didn't understand it and thought it was a joke. And so they proceed to just make us sound like we were, you know, these girls who sat around combing each other's hair and kind of watched American Idol and tweeted during the day and stuff. And it was, it wasn't great. It was pretty, um, oh, geez, it was, I mean, demeaning. demeaning. I mean, I, defamation actually even comes to mind. Yeah. The legal side of things. But so uh, what happened was they shared this story. It was in the physical magazine, but they shared this story online and they got so much backlash. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, they forgot they were they were working with some of the most influential people online. Yeah. So. I wrote a response article and and then I added the analytics uh, tracking software to both articles and the response article actually did better and was shared more than the Vanity Fair <laughs> one. And of course, I show the results and I just was, you know, I mean, I would say I was definitely um, pretty spirited and, and there were moments where... Uh, I, I could have been more humble in that time. I didn't know what I didn't know. But at the same time, I was this renegade who was going to use social media. And I did. And and it was, it actually turned out to be okay. And I learned a lot from that experience. But showing up, having them put us in trench coats and heels was, was a surprise. Yeah. And I, I can imagine in that moment, you're like, I don't know, it's Vanity Fair. Like... Uh, oh my gosh, they're like Hollywood stylists. Yeah. And I, I, I had never even imagined I'd be in that situation, let alone, um, you know, it is, it's Vanity Fair. It's not like right. it's TMZ. <laughs> right. Sorry, Harvey. Um, <laughs> do you, it's just, it's an incredible story. And I think it's, it's also one that you can learn from, right? You always have those conversations now, I'm sure, before you agree to be interviewed. Um, you know, I know that, uh, you, you were very gracious with me, but I also came with a, a referral, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think everybody who's, um, worked in PR, knows to kind of make sure you know what they're really going after and what the angle really is. But it can be hard when you've not done it before. I mean, I don't know what I would do if a major outlet wanted to interview me. I've never been through it. You know, <laughs> I, I have thoughts on what I would say and do, but, you know, you know, would I really put my lawyer pants on and say, um, I'm going to need to see this before it goes to print? And, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt that maybe my two hour one on one interview with me talking <laughs> about exactly what I would love for her to write about would have been I, I just was maybe naive to think that that would make it <laughs> to print. But it usually it doesn't. And, and having done a lot of interviews over the <laughs> last decade and national, you know, TV and whatever, it's it's never really turned that way on me. But but believe me, I, I do think about it and it's, it's always possible, right? It's yeah. anything can happen. So, yeah. Your um, hard charging career and, you know, you're rocking and rolling, you're in Vanity Fair, whether or not you like it. Um, <laughs> but it hasn't always been easy and you've, you've kind of gotten to points where you, you hit a wall sometimes. 
and um, with not only your family and friends, but your body um, telling you that you need to maybe chill out a little bit. Can you share um, when that happened for, you know, that kind of change um, that occurred with you when you started quote unquote innovating your life um, Mm -hmm. and then your subsequent Ethiopia trip? Sure. So the, the pace was fast and, you know, things were happening fast. I was on 210 flights in one year and averaging about four hours of sleep a night. And this was self-inflicted. It was definitely, there was a demand in terms of flying and being with clients and growing the business, but also speaking and doing interviews and whatever it was. Um, And it was kind of chasing that next adrenaline high. And I realized, um, well, I, the universe kind of starts to send you these signals and <laughs> and they're subtle in the beginning. And then eventually it's like, she's not getting it. <laughs> she needs to, to get a grip and she's over capacity. And so the universe humbled me quite a few times. Um, and, and it was, it was, I'd say, um, absolutely necessary to really stop and realize what was happening. And I had zero ability to really have that perspective in the middle of it. So there was a few, there were a few times where, um, I remember being at the JFK airport and it was pretty normal for me to get to that departure board and not remember where I was headed. And I just have to think (laughs) about it and look, look, scroll through the alphabetical, like, cities and it would come to me. This time it took particularly long and I couldn't really remember which airport I was at either. And so then I, uh, I thought about that for a second and and then walked over to uh, the Starbucks to fuel up for the day because of course sleep, uh, the numbers weren't there in hours. So I pay for my coffee and went to sign my name on the receipt and I could not remember my name. I could not write my name. I, I didn't, I was blank. And um, it was complete burnout. It was complete overcapacity. And and that was a big why not now moment for me of, wow, something has to change. I went over, I physiologically, I can, I feel in my body right now, similarly of it's so clear and, and crisp of what that felt like to realize that the universe in my body was telling me red alert, like you're out of gas, sister, you need to, something needs to change. And, and my relationships were really struggling and, and physical health, you know, there were, there were a lot of things going on that I just thought didn't think there was, that was a big deal, but, and it was, uh, that word grinding. And when people say hustle, I have a new feeling about it. I used to be a big advocate of, of course you have to hustle. And I, I'm not saying you don't, but there comes a point where there's, um, it's a point of diminishing returns. You know, you, you also, uh, you have to keep, keep an eye on what's important and your priorities. And so that was out of whack big time. And then you, um, you went to Ethiopia, which, you and I, I think we just need to go and get Ethiopian food together when we meet because it's one of my favorites. Oh, um, love it. I crave it at times. 
Um, what what did you go to Ethiopia for, and and how did how did that change? You know your perspective. I went to Ethiopia with Charity Water. It's an organization that helps uh, build wells across the globe and bring clean water to villages and places that don't have access. So amazing once in a lifetime trip and, and end up in Ethiopia and Tigray. And it was, it was definitely one of the, one of those, I'll never forget life changing kind of moments. I, I, um, we would go to these places and it was so remote that there weren't even roads or anything. And when we would roll up to these villages and after four by fouring, basically, (laughs) and a lot of the Ethiopians hadn't seen anyone with the color of skin that we had, you know, the such light colored skin. And so they would be really curious. And Mm -hmm. these people had never been to a, a, what we know of a city or even a town per se. I mean, we're talking completely different world. And so we'd show up and I remember these young girls, a group of them, probably eight or nine walking over to me and almost looking like they just wanted to touch my arm and (laughs) like I was an alien almost and just so curious. We didn't speak the same language. There was really no way of communicating verbally. And I wanted to try and kind of break the ice. So I thought, I'll take a picture, you know, take a Mm -hmm. selfie. And so I flipped my screen, my phone camera around and proceed to take the selfie. We all huddled together. And after I took the picture, something happened that I didn't expect. And that was they started grabbing at my phone. So we're talking like nine young girls grabbing. And I just thought, this is really weird, you know. And I realized they wanted to see the picture. They had never seen their own reflection before. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Talk about perspective. And as someone who, you know, has, has grown up with my fair share of self-confidence and body image issues and all the things that a lot of people struggle with. It was <laughs> like, wow, can you imagine? These people have never even seen what they look like. And um, I learned more from them than that in that moment and in that just opportunity. Uh, it was like a jolt of perspective and reality, kind of shifting back into alignment with myself. Um, so yeah, it was that whole trip was magic. I love I, um, I want to go there so badly. And, you know, like I said, I need to learn how to make some of the food too. I just, I, I really do. I get craving. I'm a very, um, I have specific cravings, like very specific ones. Um, in the summer, I get cravings for um, steamers. So where I'm from, I'm, I grew up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts and steamers are these big clams that literally you steam, but you've got to kind of take them apart in order to eat them. And it's a New England thing and you can't get them really down here in Florida. Um, so I get cravings for that. And then I, I do, I get cravings for Ethiopian and it's so weird. Um, and friends of mine think it's so funny because they're like, of all cuisine, it's Ethiopian. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And I'm like, yeah, I, I just, I love it. 
It's good. And there's so much culture around there. Um, the, the way that they love and cherish food too. And it's, it's neat. It really is. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's very cool. I know, um, you know, you've moved on from digital royalty and you started this podcast, the why not now show, where did that come from? It came from knowing that I have been fortunate to meet some pretty incredible people along my career path and just in in general in life. And I, there are times where I wish I would had been recording what they were saying because (laughs) I found it so valuable. And I thought, wow, what if I could share what they're sharing to more people? And, and so it was, I think I want to start a podcast and <laughs> then it became, well, what am I going to call it? And a friend was also starting a podcast. Actually, it was one of the America's sweethearts, my friend, Julia Roy. Oh, How that's funny. funny. Back to that story. <laughs> we became friends and stayed connected for years and, and she was starting one too. And it was like accountability buddies, you know, and I'm competitive mm-hmm. too. And so I wasn't about to not launch mine. And <laughs> I knew I had to at least get it out there and follow through. And so I was like, when am I going to do this? And I, you know, the planner and me thought, well, you need to map everything out. And then the, you know, the spontaneity side of me was like, why not now? Do it right now. And that was, what am I going to call it? <laughs> why not now? <laughs> So we dissect on the show these moments, these why not now moments where, you know, people like Mark Cuban, Troy Aikman, Scott O'Neill talking about sports, but also Tony Robbins and Jessica Alba and whoever else. Simon Sinek was one of your first. I mean, some of these were your first guests. It's incredible. Well, shout out to Mark Cuban because once he was game, it becomes easier to get, you know, other people to say, okay, I'll do it too. And he's always been so responsive and I'm grateful for his willingness to, to join me. And he's, yeah. So we, we hop on the show each week and talk through a moment when these people, these guests had to make a decision, a big decision, and it was their why not now moment. We dissect that moment, our day when they went from idea to action. And it's not inspirational quotes and messages. <laughs> we have enough of those scrolling around yeah. on Instagram and and stuff. It's about the tactical. No, literally, what did you do, you know, Tony Robbins, when you had this idea and it was time to implement it. What happened that day? Tell me what you did first. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's great. Um, you've, you know, even had your parents on. <laughs> I did. <laughs> it's my so mom. cute. Shout out. And uh, my dad's usually the first listener to all of the podcasts and I'm sure he will hear this too. So he's, he's got to be next. <laughs> Oh, hey, Mr. Jensen. You know, I love the, the premise of the podcast and and you do a great job with it. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I know prior to um, the interview we were talking, I was kind of telling you about how um, I came up with the idea for the podcast. And there was like this, you know, big period of time before coming up with the idea and launching. And um, when I 
decided to launch, it all of a sudden became like a really quick thing. I was like, this has to go now. If it doesn't go now, it's never going. And so we need to, I need to, I need to do it this week. And of course it's during training camp, the busiest time of year for me, because all of the contracts with our sponsors and suite holders and vendors need to be done before the first home game. And I just remember like that, that first two weeks and I had recorded a bunch of interviews beforehand. I wanted to make sure I had a bit of a bank, but man, getting like getting it launched, um, actually like putting together the website um, and and doing the audio editing with the guys and and then pushing it out there to the world. I I, I had the I got so sick. <laughs> Like a week or two later, I had the worst head and chest cold ever because I just pushed myself too hard. But I knew if I didn't do it right that right then, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't going to happen. And that was your your why not now moment kind of phase. Yeah. And I know that feeling where there's something that happens where so many of these guests have a similar theme and trend that that they they follow, and that's. When you have an idea and, and it, you know you're you're about to do something, you do something that will hold yourself accountable. You either tell someone that will hold your feet to the fire, you make some sort of move, you in, buy that plane ticket, you, um, you know, if you want to take the island, you burn your boat. You don't give yourself an out, right? Right. And that's basically what you, you were doing with yourself of, I don't care if I've got a ton of work and this is the busiest time of the year in the season, I'm still doing this. Otherwise it'll never happen. Well, it was that. And, and I think I like, you know, I, it was just being on that precipice and there's a great quote, um, a Neil Gaiman quote um, from a, a speech he gave at the university of the arts. And I have it taped to my mirror in my bedroom. And it, it's the moment that you feel that just possibly you're walking down the street naked, exposing too much of your heart and your mind and what exists on the inside, showing too much of yourself. That's the moment you may be starting to get it right. Oh, and it was that good. moment. Yeah, it's such a good quote. And so that's like every time I start to feel a little, you know, this podcast, it's it's great, but I feel um, really vulnerable at times with it because you know, it, do people like it? Is it valuable? Am I, am I doing it right? That little perfectionist in my mind. And every time I just, I walk over to the mirror and I look at that and I'm like, you know, if I'm having a hard day, if I'm thinking like people don't get me, um, because that can happen. I'm doing something that somebody in my position where I'm at, this is not a normal thing for them to do. And, um, I always just kind of look at that and I'm like, okay, it's, it's, we're good. <laughs> and um, and hat tips to you for doing this too, because you're exactly right. It's, there are a lot of, um, we put ourselves in a lot of boxes and we, we put boundaries around ourselves because of what we do or because of what we think the perception will be or what's expected. And, and you're showing people that, that doesn't have to be the case and that you can have both. You don't have to choose one path. And, this is your right. side hustle, right? I mean, this is amazing and I love it that <laughs> you're doing this. Yeah, I mean, and who knows what, what it'll turn into, right? You know, if if anything, maybe it doesn't turn into anything, but it's still, it, at the end of the day, I've made such great 
connections with people. And, um, and I have this tribe of women, um, the LTPF tribe, I'm calling it now that, uh, they're, they've become extremely close friends of mine and they're women that I, you know, would do anything I can for. And, and, and they've told me as much also, um, that they would for me. So it's just welcome to the tribe. Um, I love it. And, um, I know we need, I need to, um, wrap things up. So I only have a couple of like two quickish questions for you so you can go about your crazy, busy, merry way. Um, one is what do you do for self-care? For self-care, I've learned this over the last couple of years. <laughs> um, I've had to learn. I didn't really know what that meant before. I thought it was just getting a pedicure or something. Um, actually, <laughs> meditate. I started meditating a couple of years ago, and it's evolved. And it's now a non-negotiable for me. Um, I, I do journal. I always have, uh, off and on, I, as I look back, even you know, 15 years ago, but there would be a stint where I'd be missing a half a year or something would happen. But yeah, I do journal. Um, I have to have nature around me close by and meaning I live in the forest currently. I previously <laughs> lived on a boat. I mean, it's a big part of, of my world and, yeah. and it keeps me grounded. It keeps me inspired keeps my mind innovative. And so those are a couple of the ways. I mean, my family is, is everything. And so those are a couple, yeah. Couple tidbits. With um, meditation, do you use a particular app or are you just, are you a hardcore, you can just do it on your own type gal? I started with an app. I actually remember um, Phoenix Suns days wanting to meditate. I, I knew that it would be good for me. And mm -hmm. I tried putting a, a beach towel out in my backyard in Ahwatukee, Arizona. And I had a kitchen timer. And I just tried <laughs> to sit in the backyard on the grass and close my eyes. I thought that's really kind of all you needed to do. And I couldn't make it past maybe a minute or two. Yeah. So I remember having these tendencies and this kind of draw toward it. And then I started with an app, a self-guided or a, a guided um, app, and there are many of them. And eventually, I just um, went and took the Transcendental Meditation, uh, I don't know if you call it a course. Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've been doing that now. Uh, That's a very Tim Ferriss thing. Yeah. You know, I learned about it from a couple people I, I know very well and respect, and they're busy entrepreneurs. And, and... I just thought, okay, I think it's time for me to to kind of go to that next level, graduate, yeah. maybe be on the apps, and so far, so good. I um, One of my goals for this year um, and my, my current monthly challenge that I'm giving myself is to do Headspace every morning or every day, even if it's not in the morning. So um, I'm, I'm doing fairly well. I think I missed like one or two days last week. Um, but I find that it's just, I don't know, I'm, I'm less reactionary is really the biggest, um, That's benefit of it thing. for me. 
That's great. That's how I started too, was with Headspace. And yeah, Andy's voice is lovely. (laughs) Yes. Andy Pettycomb for anyone listening. And he's been on the Why Not Now podcast, but he's got quite the story, but he's, it's a good way to start for sure. And uh, I find I was kind of tricked into it. I thought, wow, I can have better ideas and access you know, creativity that, my I, brain. Yeah. that I didn't have access to before. And I thought, well, wow, absolutely good ROI. And then I realized, oh my gosh, it's so much bigger and better than, than just having good ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, it, I'm still a little shaky with it at times, but I've in the last couple of years also, mostly in the last year, I think, learned to just be more um, compassionate myself and to just be like, it's okay if like you're not perfect at everything (laughs) and if something, if you struggle with something, right? And that you don't have to do everything exactly the way you think it's supposed to be. And and I think that's really important when you start meditating, um, any sort of meditation practice, because it's so easy to get frustrated with because you think you're supposed to just have like a completely blank mind, right? (laughs) Yeah, I thought I had to start over if I had a thought at the beginning. Right. I would be still sitting there. I, <laughs> that's all part of it. I mean, that's what you kind of yeah. learn is that you learn to let it come and then let it go. And yeah, yeah. it's huge. It's huge. And then um, my final question is, do you have an a morning and or an evening routine that you try to follow? I do have a better morning one than evening. I don't know that I'm as consistent in the evening. Um, morning is, and this is not 100% by any means, <laughs> but I would say I bat well over 500 at this. And that is wake up, don't go to my phone and start scrolling through social media anymore. Um, I, make, <laughs> I do make tea And I meditate and journal after I meditate. So um, that's not, I mean, it is not every day by any means, but it's, I can tell when I haven't done it. Um, It's, it's become a lot more of the norm and the, the routine than, than anything I've ever done before, I guess you'd say. So, um, yeah, that's, it's pretty basic. I think a lot of people are. That's a lot of morning routines too. So I don't know if it's very yeah. fun. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by um, morning and evening routines of people. And um, I've been, you know, with the whole headspace thing, I've been trying to wake up earlier in the morning so I could do that. I try not to look at my phone, just like you said, except to turn on headspace. Um, you know, it takes like all my effort not to put CNN on the TV or something. I have a problem. Um, and, (laughs) and I've found that starting the mornings that way has, um, you know, been really good. And I, I tend to, after that, I've got this little like five year memory journal thing where, you know, every day of the year for each of the five years, there's like a little prompt. Um, so, you know, I'll write in that. And then I, I try to, I, have been kind of like easing into like looking at G, you know, my Gmail account and, um, and then looking at the social media accounts and, 
trying not to get myself in a tizzy about whatever the hell was tweeted by some crazy person in Washington. Um, you know, it, these types of things, like I've, I, it's been helpful. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's key. It's what we allow inside of our brains and, and being better stewards of what heads into our minds and stays there. And we have, we have a lot more control of it than we think, I think sometimes. And so it's been big on my agenda to, to monitor that and be more intentional because if I'm not, if I'm not on it and not watching it, I can easily get sucked in and, um, it changes the frame of, of my day. And my aunt used to say, she's this amazing (laughs) entrepreneur and just renegade. She'd say, don't let anything rent space in your head for free. It's valuable real estate. Oh, that's good. So we need that's to be really, really good, good landlords of that space up there. I We didn't get to talk about your book, but you do have a book um, that was published a few years back. Um, and, you know, do you want to give a little blurb about it? Sure. It's called Renegades Write the Rules. And a lot of the, uh, you know, stories and learnings of, of what I've been through and learned um, about, you know, not only social communication, but also about um, being a first-time entrepreneur and, and navigating into that space uh, and the evolution of how we are as humans communicating is, is in there. So you can find it on Amazon, on, you know, in bookstores, wherever uh, you buy books and there's an audio version too. And so, yeah, hopefully there's some tips and tricks in there as well for people who are trying to um, grow their presence and, and raise their voice. And I'll link to it on the blog post. Um, And then can you tell everyone where they can follow you? Sure. At Amy Jo Martin <laughs> on most all of the social media platforms and amyjomartin.com is the website. The podcast is called Why Not Now. It's on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, you name it. <laughs> and um, amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now will get you to all of the episodes. So. I think I've, yeah. pl- I've plugged everything at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dog's hashtag is <laughs> just kidding. Oh, pl- won't go there. I was like, d- is there an Instagram for your dog? Because then I want to know what it is. I've refrained from an account and managing an Instagram account. Um, <laughs> so we do have a hashtag and it's Ruby Sue Aussie on Insta. Stop it. Shepherd. And I dare you to go check her out. She's the coolest thing. Ruby um, Sue. I love it. <laughs> we were destined to be friends. Um, you and Ruby Sue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you for being on LTPF. And, um, you know, I really, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Bobby Sue, thanks for, for doing this, for navigating this new world and being a place where we can hear more from women in sports. It's, it's amazing. I'm honored to be to be on the show. Again, thank you so much to Amy Jo Martin for being on the podcast. She gave me far more time than uh, we had allotted. So I'm very grateful to her. 
make sure you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing LTPF on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. You will be happy to know that our website at ltpfpod.com is up to date, so you can catch more show notes on there, along with links to everything we've talked about. And finally, big thank you to the guys at RadioInfluence.com, Jerry and Jason, for as always being my little angels in the background when I have a microphone problem and it's the night before we're releasing. (laughs) That didn't happen. No, I'm kidding. It did right now. So um, as always, thank you for listening and we'll catch you back here. This is Jim Fannin, America's Zone Coach, and I'm excited about bringing my new podcast, The Jim Fannin Show, to RadioInfluence.com. Each week, we're going to talk about the zone and how this mindset can help you in all facets of your life. I'll give you all the tools you need to change your life and help guide you to become your genuine, authentic best self. With the only proven blueprint for attracting the zone mindset, I've helped transform millions of lives. In my 40 years of experience, I've coached CEOs and senior executives from 350 of the Fortune 500 companies in 50 different industries. I've coached professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hall of Famers, all pros, all stars, entertainers, and so many more to help them gain the tools and techniques to create a life of simplicity, balance, and abundance. And now it's my privilege to bring these methods to you every week, along with some of my champion good friends as special guests. If you want to get in the zone in all you do, check out The Jim Fannin Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.